bow with me in a word of prayer. Our gracious Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for how you manifested your love in creation. Thank you for how you manifested your love in the ultimate divine way on the cross. Lord, we stand always and completely in our life, in our walk, in absolute need of you. For in you only have we strength. Without you, we have no strength. We have no purpose, no design. We have no hope. But you have become all of those things to us. And, Father, our souls are satisfied. And I pray, Father, this morning as we look into your word that your spirit would speak to us, would cut through to the heart of each and every one of us. And challenge us, Father, for where we are in our walk of faith. Challenge us in how we live for your honor, for your glory. And grow us, Father. Teach us how to rejoice in you. Teach us how to marvel at your hand and your work. Teach us to accept by faith everything you do in our lives. We give you the honor and the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I hope we're singing that song when Christ comes, Ashley. I like it. It makes me want to just stop and just think about Christ returning today. and It just stirs up the heart to desire Him. Think about... The Apostle John, this is not even part of my message, so I better hurry. But he, in the end of all of Revelation, when he saw everything, all the visions that God gave him, he had one thing on his mind at the end. He said, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. He wasn't wanting to, to uh, just, God, race ahead and, and just forget the rest of your plan. He just said, wow, I'm, I'm ready for it to be done. I'm ready to be ushered into the kingdom and, and just be a part of this divine kingdom of God. We need to talk like that. We need to make sure that our children hear us talk like that because it is our home. This morning I wanted to look at a text of Scripture and uh, focus on something in the book of Daniel. And I was just reminded of something, maybe not one of the moral lessons that we, I would teach my children growing up, but I remember when my children were small, one of the things we had a habit of doing was uh, we would go outside and we, at night, and we lay on the driveway, and we would see which one could uh, spot a satellite the first. So I sh- it took a long time to help them see what a satellite looked like. I don't know what they had in their minds. But it just got to be a habit, and we enjoyed looking at the stars. And then one time, I thought, you know, I would talk about the moon and explain to them why the moon wasn't a star, but it's brighter than the stars. And Anyway, and I thought... I said, one day I'm going to get my telescope and I'm going to bring it out here and we're going to look at the moon. I wanted you to see it closer. I wanted you to see the craters on the moon. I was so excited to show my kids this. So 
I don't think I had to go wait till I went back home to see my mom and get my old telescope. It was a flimsy telescope, but I mounted it on the driveway and I got it all set up and got it focused. And, you know, they were so excited to see the moon through the telescope and the wind was blowing and it was complicated. They would get too excited. They'd go up there and they'd bump it with their little eyes and the moon would be gone. Or they would try to get it focused and they couldn't see it. And uh, you can probably imagine. It did occur to me just to go cut the picture of the moon out and just tape it in the, in the lens so they could see what I was trying to talk about. But it was worth the effort. But my desire, my hope this morning as we look at this passage of Scripture is to bring our God in focus. And... Uh, And realize perhaps in life sometimes it's hard to keep them in focus. So you have to be intentional with that. You have to labor at that. Bring it in focus and realize God's on the move. That was another thing I had to tell my kids. They'd get it in. The moon would be in there and they'd go inside and come back and it wasn't in the scope anymore. So I'd explain to them rotation, all this kind of stuff. It's complicated. But God's on the move all the time. He's working in our lives. We need to be with Him and labor to understand and labor to know and enjoy Him. And keep them in focus so we can put everything in life in the proper perspective. So as we look at this chapter in Daniel, it's about Daniel and the three three companions, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That's what they called each other. That's how they talked to each other. That was their Hebrew name. And their Hebrew names had a lot to do with Jehovah is our help. They, lo- they, they probably loved their names, but they were forced to take these Babylonian names. So it's about the crisis that you or I might call the crisis of their faith. Let me set the stage a little bit because if, well, as Matthew's talking about the, the um, coming out of exile of the Hebrews and the restoration... We're going to go back, and this is at the beginning of the 70 years of captivity, early in that 70 years of captivity. And if you remember and recall, Daniel was summoned, or he asked to see the king, because the king had a haunting dream, and none of his wise men, none of the counselors, the enchanters, the sorcerers, they couldn't divulge the dream. And to make matters worse, they wouldn't even tell, Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't even tell them what this dream was. He said, well, if you're my wise man, you should be able to not only tell me the meaning and interpretation of the dream, you should also be able to tell me what the dream was that I had. He wouldn't even give it to them. They said, nobody asks, no king asks their people such difficult things. And Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't have it any other way, so he was going to have them all put to death. All of them put to death, and that included Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. It included all of them. So when Daniel heard about this, he went to his three companions and said, we've got to pray for this. So they prayed for this. God gave Daniel the interpretation of the dream. Daniel brought the interpretation of the dream before Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar was satisfied. And so everybody was safe. Everybody was safe. Well, it all went to his head. Nebuchadnezzar was at least realized that, wow, Daniel's God knows this is exactly what I was dreaming about. And, and I like the interpretation. The head of gold is me. So it went to his head, so to speak, right? And so he had a statue built, a gold statue. It's like 90 feet, 27 and a half meters tall, set out in a plain. 
And in the dedication of this statue, it was really the self-embodiment of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. The, it was said that when the music played, everybody had to stop what they're doing, fall on the ground and worship and pay respect to the idol of Nebuch- that was Nebuchadnezzar's. Well, that was going to cause problems right away, and it did. And the next thing on their table, however long it took them to build that, you know, they were promoted, right? They were promoted. Uh, uh, Daniel and his companions were promoted, so they were promoted above the other counselors, so that didn't make them very happy. And so they looked for an opportunity to bring accusation against them, and they used this because there's no way they were going to bow down at the sound of the music and worship the golden image. There was just wasn't going to happen. So when the music played and they decided they weren't going to bow down, the accusers went before Nebuchadnezzar's and said, you know, these Hebrew guys, no, they're not, they're not bowing down. They're refusing to bow down, O King Nebuchadnezzar. You're so wonderful, I can't understand why they wouldn't bow down to you. Nebuchadnezzar became furious and said, bring them in. Now I want to just, that's the background, I want to break into this. In verse number 8 of chapter 3. Therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to the king Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree. They had evil intent, no doubt. You've made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast in the burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious. He was in a furious rage, commanded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king Nebuchadnezzar and answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, I make a small supposition here that the king in, in his position and authority and having so many counselors and so many wise people throughout the kingdom running his affairs, it was the largest kingdom in the earth at the time. He was the most powerful king at the time. I think he heard the accusers, and, but I don't know that it necessarily registered with Nebuchadnezzar who these men were until he saw them by, face to face. And then it clicked with him. Ooh, these are Daniel's companions. And they helped me. They, un- they prayed and I promoted them. So he gives them a second chance. Isn't that nice? A second chance to come to their senses. And he says this. Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, bag, uh, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good, but if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning fiery furnace, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? So try to picture this setting. These men are brought in, they're accused, they're standing before the king, as they would often do, but now the context was different. The king wasn't seeking their wise counsel. 
He wasn't asking them about the affairs of the kingdom. Is it true you don't fall down and worship? I'm going to give you a chance. Do it now. And all this will go away. These men were at a crossroads of their faith. Now, I want to be careful how we understand that because I know how sometimes we, we all have a little different idea about the crossroads of faith. But these men were at a, uh, they had a crisis that they were facing. They find themselves facing a need to make a decision. Maybe we would say it was a difficult decision. Maybe you can look at your own life and say, yeah, I, I know what that's like to be at a, at a, at a, at a, in a crisis, at a crossroads of my faith and have to make a difficult decision. This decision uh, usually involves, it could be even difficult, but it usually involves some letting go of something and holding on to something else, and they had to make some kind of decision, and they needed to make it right then. A, a, a crisis usually means that, doesn't it? It's a turning point between... Uh, usually for the better or for the worse, but it's some kind of turning point. So what Nebuchadnezzar was offering them, he says, you have a turning point here. I can, this can be easy for you. If you will just worship like everyone else does, this will all go away. I'm not asking you to forget your God. I'm just asking you to fall down and worship at my gods and show homage to my God and, uh, and before my statue. And they heard the king out, and this is what they said. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, or in other words, if, if you carry out this order to have us burned in the furnace, so that's what he means when he says, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand. He is able to deliver us out of the furnace. So they're talking about the sovereign ability and lordship of God who can absolutely do anything. They didn't, they didn't um, submit themselves to a God who wasn't sovereign and who was weak and couldn't do anything or everything. They, could, they submitted themselves to a God whom they completely believed that he, could, he was able to do anything. He can, he's able to deliver us out of this furnace. That wasn't a contingency for them. It doesn't matter to them, but look what was absolute in their hearts and minds. And he said, he will deliver us, he will, he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. So what were they terrified about? We'll look back at that in a second. Look at verse 18, it says, but if not, be it known to you. Now when he says, but if not, he's not saying, well, In case we get burnt up, I want to tell you what we would have said to you. That's not what they're saying. When when they said, but if not, they're saying, if you decide to stop this foolishness and take away this sentencing that you've imposed upon us, if you decide to take it away, just know something, we would stand the same. We will not fall down and worship your gods. We will not. Worship the golden image that you've set up. And so, the rest of the story we won't read. You can read it in more detail, but you know how it goes. Nebuchadnezzar became absolutely furious. He was mad enough before. And now he was furious and he ordered that the furnaces be heated seven times hotter than they were. And he had the men bound up and threw them into the furnace. Read the story. Even the, the men who were who were commissioned to pick them up, 
and throw them into the furnace. They lost their lives. The flames were so hot that they were consumed by the flames. They couldn't recover whatever. They just died. So here they are, thrown in the furnace, and some little bit of time or something passes by, and whoa, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's like watching. I don't know how many people, probably a big host of people were there to see this. It was, the king said, I've got to make an example. Anybody else in the kingdom decide to do this? I've got to make an example. Anyway, there could have been so many watching, but the king was watching, and he was looking inside the door of the furnace, and he saw a fourth person they were, first of all, he saw four men walking around. Nobody was bound up. Nobody was tied up. He heard no screams. He saw people walking around, and there was a fourth person. And now Nebuchadnezzar was not a believer at all. Trust me on this. Read it carefully. Sometimes you read these little sections of passages, and you think, wow, Nebuchadnezzar is a child. He got a, had a change of heart, you know. When Daniel told him the dream, surely no God's better than Daniel's God. And he'll make something similar statement here as, as the result of this thing comes out. But he was not a believer. He just was somebody who could be pretty well awed by something extraordinary like this. But it didn't change his heart at all. He looked in there and said in his own language, he said, that's like, wow, some, like, some son of the gods or something. Something extraordinary about this person. And... Um, he hollered for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to come out. He wanted to hear the explanation of all of this stuff. They came out, right? And they didn't even smell of smoke. Not even a hair was singed. Wow. Too amazing. Too amazing. We don't know much about what was said about the fourth person. And there's a lot of debate out there, and I'm not here to debate whether that fourth person was an angel or this or this or this in my heart. I believe it was fully the person of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that met them there. And I just, I, I feel certain of this. You, you love God like these men love God. You devote your life to God and submit yourself to Him and enjoy His company and fellowship and enjoy His Lordship over your life like these gentlemen did. Uh, it must have been so pleasing to the Father for them to love the way they loved him. I can't imagine God's, my thought, just my thought, I can't imagine him sitting on a throne in heaven um, saying, uh, Gabriel, where are you? Michael, come, come here. I, have, so I need you to do something. Go, uh, the boys are being thrown in the furnace today. Would you go down there and just chat with them a little bit, meet them while they're there? You know, I feel like it's like, uh, Maybe like, you know, when you go to the airport, somebody's standing there like this, you know, with the sign. You know, it's not your boss or who you're going to work through. It's somebody's holding the sign up for you. You know, it's a little impersonal, but, you know. Because I remember when we came, it was kind of nice to see somebody there. <laughs> but, uh, no, 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 I believe Jesus himself was there to meet them. Wow. You can think about that a long time. We don't have time this morning. You can think about that a long time. What did, he, what did they talk about? They were walking around. Obviously, spending some time there. I don't know. I thought about a lot of things. I thought about when, what, 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 did, what happened when Jesus said, or when Nebuchadnezzar said, come, come out. I'm, I'm thinking Jesus said, boy, you got to go. I know this is pretty cool. And we get to see each other. But you need to go out. I have more work for you to do. So we had to usher him out. An extraordinary situation. 
sometimes when we have a crisis of faith in our own life, and I think we do, you know, we have turning points in our life where we have to, in some measure, decide to trust God fully, like these guys, or take matters into our own hands or just throw up our hands and give up or something happens, you know. Um, we learn to let go of something and hopefully we learn to hold on more to the power of God in our life and to God's promises and truth to God himself. You know, I think our own personal testimonies are surely weighted with many such encounters. The, the, the Bible is full of numerous stories and numerous divinely inspired accounts of men and women and children who faced pivotal moments in their faith where they needed to trust in God. And God brought them along in His grace and in His mercy to trust. And you might ask yourself often enough, do I trust God like those guys do? God gave him a miracle. He trusted him. They trusted him. God performed a miracle. And maybe you say, I need a miracle in my life from time to time. I want to talk. First thing I want to really bring out as we focus in on this, I want to focus in on a miracle context here and, um, and just, just talk about this a little bit. How do we see a miracle like this? You know, maybe people would read this story and say, boy, they did need a miracle. Maybe we look in our own lives in certain situations. Like we said earlier, it's, I need a miracle uh, in my life. If, if I'm going to get through what lies ahead for me, I'm going to need a miracle. Or we say it's going to take a miracle or this is not going to work out. In itself, it's not a bad thing to, to, to realize in your life you need divine intervention. But I have some concerns when I think about how we perhaps look at miracles. What is, a mir- what is a miracle anyway? I mean, the Bible has a lot of them. We read about them. I think most people see them as something that belongs in the Scripture or somebody else's life. It never really happens in my life. I've never had one of these fiery furnace moments in my life. Don't be too sure. Think about it. You probably have. The standard definition of a miracle is um, some extraordinary event in the physical world that surpasses everything we know as humans and everything we understand in natural powers and is described as a supernatural cause. Well, I like that definition. It didn't come out of the Bible. It came out of Merrill-Webster's Dictionary. But I like it. Supernatural cause. You realize that our faith that we have in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is a supernatural faith? That makes Christianity different than any and all religions all over the world. Our religion is a supernatural one. So in effect, it was a miracle. It is a miracle in your life that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a miracle that you, that you own Him as your Lord and Savior. And submit yourself to him. The point I want to bring out is I want us to think about something. Is this the only kind of miracle there is? Is this this kind? Do we imagine God really, do we ever imagine God can only work this kind of miracle in someone else's life or do we see it differently? Perhaps it's, we should think about this. And this is what I'm thinking. 
This is what I believe is in, the, in God's Word. Can God do anything less than a miracle in your life? Can He do anything less than a miracle? Do, does God do certain things as He sits on the throne of heaven and this is a spectacular miracle and this is just mundane stuff God does? We see our life like that, perhaps. We don't have to. We shouldn't. I believe if we look at this carefully, and we would believe that God really can't do anything less than a miracle. This is the context of miracles. Wow. Um, I don't have much time. I've got to hurry. Real quickly, you know Elijah when he, after the Mount Carmel experience, read that, refresh yourself about it. After the Mount Carmel experience, man, it was an enormous experience, an enormous display of the power of God. And it changed almost the mind and heart from what we can understand and read from Scripture. It didn't change anything. Elijah was disappointed. He was fleeing. Jezebel was hunting him down to kill him. He finds himself in a cave. And God calls him out of the cave. I won't take time to read it, but it's in um, 1 Kings 19, 12. God called him out of the cave and God passed by and a mountain was destroyed by wind. Rocks were destroyed. There was a great earthquake and there was a great fire. And he said, in all of these things, I wasn't in them. God may have sent a host of angels to to do his bidding, but he said in a still, small voice. What he was saying to Elijah in the whole context of it is that, that I don't just work in grandiose miracles that are on public display. Sometimes the miracles I do in your life are a still, small voice. In the Hebrew it says it's a thin voice. I'm still thinking about that. A thin voice, a soft voice, something that speaks into your heart. And it becomes more powerful. When Elijah heard that, you know what his reaction was? He took his cloak and he covered his face. He realized he was standing in the presence of God. This was a divine insight for him to realize this. And he, and, and to, and to, he says, God, I was just so jealous for you. I expected more out of what I did and what you did with me. I expected more at Mount Carmel. God said, he said, I'm working. And I work in powerful ways. I'm in the still, small voice as much as I'm in anything else that you see. We need to think about miracles the right way and realize that God's always working. You know, the Heavenly Father is very judicious when He works miracles. He can't let all of them be on public display. It just is too distracting. Can you imagine these three Hebrew young men, what their life must have been like after they come out of the furnace? I don't know if there was a paparazzi that day or what kind of thing was going on. They might have had to put some shades on and hide out for a while because I'm pretty sure people wanted to talk to them about their experience. It was sensational. It was powerful. It was more about the love of God than anything. And that's what was the powerful thing here. This miracle was powerful in them. You know what these men thought? If, if we were to bow down, that's worse than the fire. I would lose my Lord. I would lose him. He, God loves us, and we love Him. And if we bow down, we're going to lose everything. The fire was nothing to these men. The miracle they needed was, God, give me strength that I don't ever deny you. That's the miracle they wanted and looked for. But the Lord's careful. 
Recall how the populace of Jerusalem was often trying to grab a hold of Jesus and set him on a throne and make him a king? Why did they want to do that? Because they saw his miracle. And they misjudged them. He didn't understand what they were for. They wanted to make him a king. Why? Because he could do anything. He could feed 5,000. When there was no food, he could just offer it. He, he could heal the blind and, and the lame and raise the dead. He could do anything. Let's make him our king. We need to be really careful. Do we want a God like that? Do we feel like our God's like that? Do you come across something in your life, some crisis of faith, and you pray for some kind of miracle? Are you trying to avoid the plan of God in your life? you feel as if God's not doing his job? Do we want God to be like a bellhop? We ring a bell and he comes running to us and say, what, what can I do for you now? There's an underlining theme here that comes out of the love of God. These children are back and I'm just, uh, I'm going to go quicker. Um, we just have to be careful we don't make wrong assumptions by the power of God and the miracle that he works in our life. Let's just move real quickly to the lordship of Christ that comes in here. These men said, he's able. He's 100% able. That's how they believed in their God. They did not limit their God. They, they believed in His Lordship and they trusted in His Lordship. They trusted in every circumstance that happened in their life, every event in their life. Did they pray for things when they got sick or this happened or that? Sure they did, but they trusted the outcome. We, they just simply said, we know He's able, well, but we'll take what he, what he brings. We'll take it. People, this kind of submission to God is how His light shines in your life. It takes this kind of submission for the light to shine in your life. If we complain about everything, think about what, if you're not careful, what you could teach your children by frantically being anxious about what's going to happen tomorrow or how this event will play out. They watch you and they see how anxious you are. You're going to teach them that trusting God doesn't fit here. You don't want to teach your children that. You don't want to believe that. You have to believe that God's working. Did Paul, when he was facing imprisonment in Philippi, throw down and said, listen, uh, Silas, we've got to pray for a miracle here. If we're not careful, we're going to be thrown in a prison. We've got to pray for a miracle. can't do ministry in prison. They're going to beat us nearly to death. Well, on the other side, there was a jailer whose life was just not good. We don't know his story, but it was unfulfilled. And maybe he was praying for a miracle. And God put two miracles together and he put Paul in prison to share the gospel with the jailer. And his whole family got saved. This is about trusting God. Being 100% trusting God. Let me move to the last point and talk about submission to God. If we are confident in the Lordship of Christ, we are going to be able to be in submission to God. I think this might be a 21st century word that's starting to lose context. What does it mean to be in submission to God? Let me tell you very quickly. You know, we read in Matthew chapter 22 when Jesus says the, 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 all of the commandment of the Old Testament hangs on two things. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength, and love thy neighbor as thyself. That's a lot to ask for us to give every ounce of who we are to love our Lord. But one reply is, he did that for you. He didn't hold anything back. Another thing to look at is, what is the Lord effectively saying? What is he effectively saying? 
look at the beginning of the New Test of the Old Testament when he created the world in six days, rested on the seventh. He gave this creation to Adam. He put a tree in the creation and said, "Don't touch that, but all of this is yours. The beauty of all of this is yours." Just don't touch the tree. He gave them a space, a framework, and an opportunity to say, "We love you too." And we won't touch that tree. He gave them an opportunity. You know what the Lord was saying in the first chapters of Genesis? God was saying, I want to be enough for you that you will always choose me. You will not choose circumstances to be favorable. You'll just choose me and trust what I'm going to do because I'm going to do great things because I only always continuously work in miracles whether you see them or not. That's all I do is work in miracles. Go all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 3. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I just want you to open it. I want you to invite me to come here. I want to be enough for you. I want to be enough for you. Ask yourself in your faith, Do you believe that? Is Christ enough for you? You satisfied with him. We need to be believers that are satisfied. These three guys were so satisfied with their Lord. That's why they told the king, we've no need to answer you. We don't have to deliberate. We don't have to think this through. We're not going to worship you. Our allegiance, our, our love, our everything about us is wrapped up in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He owns me. He owns me with a love that is untouched by anything. Where's your faith at? Where's your trust? Do you trust in a God who just can't pull it all together? Do you trust in a God? Well, you know, I, you can't just believe in the sovereignty of God. I think I'm okay, a couple more minutes. You can't just believe in the sovereignty of God and not absorb it into your life. You've got to live your life out like you do believe in the sovereign God and He's in control. But why is it so hard for our Christianity today to, take, to attach themselves to the Lord in this manner? Do they look at it and say, you know, I've just seen too much. I've been through too much stuff. My friends have been through too much stuff. My family's been through too much stuff. We prayed for God to do something and work, and we just didn't see it. Uh, it boils down to, you know, I think God has a few things on His resume that just don't look good. For me to, to, to completely submit myself to him. You feel that way about God? Does he make mistakes in your life? Really? That's really, really bad theology. To think that. The Apostle Paul gives this warning in latter days. In his day, he, it was happening. In the first century, in the churches that Paul ministered to. There will come a time where, where the church will heap to themselves... The kind of teachers that say what makes them feel good. They'll heap to themselves people who just kind of tickle the ear and they walk out all the time feeling really good and not challenged. You know what? You miss out on something. These men were so delighted to see Christ, he met them. He met them in the furnace. That thrilled them. You know, he, they weren't afraid. But he met them. It's like God saying, you know, trust me, I, I'm working things you can't even imagine. I'm working things you can't, I'm, I'm working to answer your prayer, but it, it touches the lives of many people. Let me work. And the only way I work, and that's in miracles. 
And let me be triumphant in your life because that's the only thing I can be is triumphant. I can't be less than that. So look into our own hearts and lives and say, think about Jesus saying to you, I want to be enough for you. Is he enough for you? Embrace him. Embrace him and enjoy him and spend time with him and listen to him. I read last week, when it comes to prayer, half of your prayer ought to be you not talking. Half of your prayer ought to be you listening. Draw near to God and he will draw nigh to you. Okay, that's God saying this. I will be there for you, but I'm waiting for you. Come. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, Lord, this passage of Scripture has so much in it and so much to unpack. And Father, I feel like uh, your Spirit is going to have to do that uh, even more so in our lives as we think about what this means. Lord, we need to have this kind of conviction to believe and embrace the Lordship of Jesus Christ in our life and that submitting to you will let our light shine that you can use us. And Lord, we need this and we pray for this to work in us. Lord, we want you to be enough. Teach us to let go of the world and to hold on to you. And we'll give you the honor and the glory and the praise for you are our King. You spared nothing in your love to us. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.